0: Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grode. I joined with Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, we're coming to you from the Coming Home Network International Studios. And we're continuing our study of Romans. Today we'll look at Romans chapter two. Last couple of weeks we've finished up that long section in chapter one. And uh, we'll get to that in a moment. I just want to remind you, we'd love to have you join us. Our email list uh, at deepinscripture.com or you can send us an email. We always try to include an email in every program because we want to hear from you. And uh, you can follow us on Facebook or if you go to the chnetwork.org website, you can find out all about our work. We're looking at this early section of Romans. It's a bigger the whole book of Romans is something that you should be read should be read in one sitting over an evening to get the whole gist of the Paul's argument, but we're taking it slowly. And essentially, uh, this first part of Romans emphasizes that God so loved the world that he not only revealed himself to mankind, but he gave mankind the freedom to respond to his love. Every single human being has been created in the image of God. And through the death and resurrection of Christ has been redeemed. So we look at the news every night we see some people that we might category as, quote, despicable characters, unquote, yet they are people for whom Christ died, and they've benefited by that death and resurrection. Every person has within their conscience a desire for God, or as St. Augustine puts it, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. In his love, God has revealed himself to humanity, all of humanity, in three ways, through his creation. To the people he chose, Israel, and through Christ, through the gospel. In Romans 1, uh, 16 through 21, we see that because of these revelations, mankind therefore is without excuse. However, also in his love for each person, we were given the freedom to choose. And as St. Paul describes in chapter 1, 22- through 32, mankind apart from grace, turned away from God to idols and to immoral living. And we can't point fingers, we're all there. So as Paul states three times in the end of chapter one, God gave them up to their own choices, gave us up to our own choices. And as a result, Paul says in the end of chapter one, though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but approve those who practice them. And this certainly describes the world in which we now live. And I just thought I'd mention here, I can't remember if you mentioned this last week, but Paul, at another place in his second letter to Timothy, likely his last letter, when Paul himself is facing his twilight years, Paul tells his young bishop, he says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of stress. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderers, profligates, fierce, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding the form of religion, but denying the power of it. Avoid such people. And that In that case... In that instance was how Paul told Timothy to deal with people caught up in these lifestyles. Well, today we're going to continue this discussion and see how Paul says that we indeed should respond to fallen people. Can you know this this first part of Romans sounds like a good preach.
1: <laughs> it certainly does, <laughs> especially the first chapter that you so uh, summarized so well. Um, because Paul is describing the 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 Gentile world that he knew so well, and uh, having been a Jew, but he grew up in Tarsus, remember, uh, and so he knew the 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 Greek or the Greco-Roman culture so well, but now in chapter two that we're going to look at today, he turns uh, surprisingly, or at least we might think surprisingly, to not to to the Gentile world, but to the Jew. That's now the Jewish Christian, the Jew who's believed in Christ, entered the church in Rome, and we know that there was a huge Jewish uh, uh, community in Rome by this time. And he does, and he says, well, you know, you might rightly think, Jew, that you're in a position to judge all these Gentiles, but that isn't the case, because you, O man who judge, are without excuse. We need to remember here that what, what Paul is doing is uh, <clears throat> engaging in what the scholars call a diatribe. He's, he's beginning now to face a group and he's, he's gonna use a lot of questions to, um, to get them to think about what they, what they really believe and to think about what, how they may be tempted to be judgmental toward others, but they're in no position to do so. We also have to remember that he's leading, he's on a path here. He's on a mission and his mission is to show That both Jew and Gentile are both condemned by the law and that therefore, because they're basically in the same position, even though the Jews were privileged with the covenants and with the law and with the uh, the priesthood, all these things, still they're in the same position as the Gentiles. They need to be justified by faith, too. In chapter 3, he's going to go through this long uh, litany of offenses that both Jew and Gentile commit. Basically, he's going to end up saying all have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God. And then in chapter four, he's going to bring up Abraham and say um, he's going to use Abraham as this as the one who is the example of faith that is justified by faith. Now, that's where he's going. But in chapter two, he's got to get there and he's got to get there by talking to uh, the Jews. So we'll, we'll talk a lot about that today. But Mark personally, by the email that we had today. Uh, it, was a, it was a good question and a difficult one. So, um, let me read it. In, <clears throat> Dear Marcus and Ken, I realize this is an awkward question, but given what St. Paul says in these early verses in Romans and in your discussion last week, how do we understand the death of a person like Robin Williams, God rest his soul? The details seem to indicate that he committed suicide, And the media wants to excuse this because he was plagued with depression and drug abuse. Uh, But I've always been taught that suicide is a mortal sin. Thank you, Steve. Um, That's a delicate and difficult question. Yeah, it is. Um, I I don't know. What do you think about that, Marcus? Well,
0: uh, just let me begin by that. And this really comes into the great context of of what we're going to look at in in a moment in chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, because... Um, we can see this list of, of things that Paul gives and, and else, elsewhere, and we can be tempted to therefore use those as a grid to drop on the lives of other people and judge them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, we take someone like Robin Williams, and the truth is, I mean, everybody listening probably thinks they know Robin Williams. Uh, but Robin Williams isn't Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, you know, Robin Williams isn't the genie in the movie aladdin robin williams wasn't uh the man on the radio in uh, good morning vietnam uh, or one of the movies i saw robin williams in where he plays um, a murderer uh, in one of his more dramatic roles a demented murderer well none of us probably knows not only robin williams but anybody else you know, Ken, you and I are good friends, but mm-hmm. we don't really know each other the way our Lord does, and so that's why yeah. our Lord and Saint Paul and the Church and all of us have all, all the have always said we never ever stand in judgment of anyone else. So that's not, and I don't think that's what Steve was really asking here in his question. You know, we pray for Rob and William's soul and. Uh, and especially his family and those who mourn for him. And, and as we, you know, I particularly pray for those who are moved by Robin Williams' example, plus a negative. And we, we do pray for anyone that might be influenced to, to do the same to their life. We don't want that to happen. We want to reach out to people and help them, if, especially if they're in depression or in drug abuse. Yeah. But the question is, Ken, more on the issue of suicide itself. Let's just look at that. Or, you know, how do we deal with people? Uh, Ken, I don't know if you ever did, but I, I remember uh, in my years as a pastor a couple times dealing uh, with suicide, having to lead a funeral service for someone in my congregation or a, a mm-hmm. child, especially a child. That's the one thing I can remember, a teenage son of a parishioner who had committed suicide. It's tough writing a eulogy for that. Uh, when I was a Presbyterian, what do you say? Uh, it's it's really tough. Uh, so I mean, I think that's where the the emailers drawing our attention. What about how do we deal with suicide?
1: Well, you know the the Catechism gives us a lot of wisdom here, um, and it's funny as much theology book so many theology books I've read, I often come back to the Catechism because it capsulizes in such a beautiful way. Um, <clears throat> the teaching of the church one of the things it says in in paragraph 2280 is to remind us of the background of any uh, tragic act like this and that is that <clears throat> we each have a privilege uh, we've been given a gift of a life by God and we're responsible for what we do with that life and <clears throat> however we, we we remember that that life is a gift and therefore we're stewards of that life. In other words, God is the sovereign master of our lives. We are to use our lives in service to Him. Subjectively speaking, um, that is to say, apart from any particular person, in their circumstance, the very act of suicide is a contradiction of the nature of God. It's a contradiction of the nature of being human, which is to to love life, to, to want to be uh, in relationship with other people, and I think—I mean, this is my personal opinion—but I can't imagine what a person in suicide could be thinking, except that they've they've given up all hope of life. They've given up all hope of of having happiness, and so when they commit suicide, <clears throat> it it really has a devastating effect on on everyone. The catechism reminds us of that. In the very ne- in the very next paragraph, twenty two eighty one, it says that suicide is is contrary to the love of the living God. So that's the nature of suicide. It's it's a horrible, horrible tragedy. However, well, let me we just throw in there, Ken, if I can,
0: this, Ken, Let me throw it in that yeah, that sure. comment because which which really uh, emphasizes why we need to evangelize. Why we must never presume on Mm -hmm. someone's outer appearance that everything is okay on the inside. You know, someone like Robin Williams uh, is—you know—how many people we've heard on the news just can't can't believe that a a man with such joy would commit suicide. Mm -hmm. And, And often we we recognize that. Humor, as good as it is, and we use it all the time, even on our program here, is often a a facade. All of us have facades we use to cover up, to protect, to keep people from knowing on the inside. I think people who watch my program, you know, I've been on TV now for for 18 years, every week, and, and people presume I'm probably an extrovert, and, well, they don't know me. I'm an introvert. I'm not comfortable with crowds. I'm not really comfortable with people. It's easy for you and I can to do this program. It's just you and me talking. We don't know anybody's listening to us. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with my guests and the journey home. But people don't know what's going on inside me. We don't know what's going on inside of Robin Williams or anyone in our life. That's why we need to help people know the love of God. And we need to help yeah. people understand that, that, as it says in First John, our goal is to be able to stand before God without embarrassment. That's the goal of our life, mm-hmm. is to stand before him. And I believe suicide often comes at the end of a tunnel where people find no way out. And they just mm-hmm. feel that that even as, you know, Paul one time in, in another letter, I think it was Galatians, Ken, where he says he wasn't sure whether he wants to live or die. Mm-hmm. You know, he's ready. You know, is it better to go with Christ or stay here? Whichever is God's will is fine with me. I'm ready. Mm -hmm. Well, we're called to be ready at any time. Every day we're called to be ready and willing. If God's willing to take me home, I'm ready to come, Jesus. That's fine. But his timing, his timing. And as it says in that paragraph you said, it offends not only our own call to stewardship of this gift, it offends the love we have for our neighbor, and it offends its contrary to the very love that our God has for us when he gave us this life.
1: One of the things it says here, too, that, and I think you, you've you brought this out, the, the way in which people can um, mask their deeper inner feelings or problems are, uh, we all have that temptation because we want to put on a, a good uh, outward show. Um, the catechism in sections 2282 and 2283 into that psychological and this uh, aspect of of suicide and one of the things that this is on the background of is the church's very wise distinction between the objective in, in moral theology moral theologians distinguish between the objective nature of an act and the subjective culpability for an act. This is really important. We have this actually in, our court, um, in a court, in a court system. For example, uh, let's suppose uh, somebody commits, uh, you know, kills somebody, and is drunk while driving, and they've, they've killed somebody. And so, what is the jury asked to uh, deliver on? To they're asked to deliberate about the facts. Did this happen? but they're not necessarily asked to deliberate on the level of culpability of the person. And so we've in our legal system have made this distinction between the objective nature of the act and on the other hand, the culpability. What the Catechism is telling us here is that uh, voluntary, it says cooperation in suicide is contrary to the moral law, which not only means with regard to ourselves, but with regard even to anybody else. Assisted suicide is, in fact, a deep moral um, assault on the on the on human life, and uh, and on the and the law of God. It goes on to say, however, that when people often, when they do commit suicide, they they um, they do so because they have a really diminished mental state. And they 're not able to to make the kind of decisions that would be we would want to call rational or, 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 or good uh, sound decisions and that's why the Catechism goes on to say don't ever despair of a person's eternal salvation because of suicide last night on Facebook I put up a note on my on my page I said, you know please pray for the soul of um, of uh, Robin Williams." because he was such a well-known public figure. And uh, a person asked, well, do we know if he was a believer? And I said, well, I don't know if he was a believer or not, but um, that shouldn't matter. We should never despair of anybody's salvation. And she wrote back and said, of course, no, absolutely. We we must pray for a person. So objectively speaking, suicide is a a terrible, grave offense against life. But at the same time, uh, people are not, uh, often not in the circumstance where they're, where they're fully rational in doing so.
0: Yeah, I think it's important, Ken, to, to read this the last two lines in this section, the Catechism on Suicide. It's kind of, okay, so what, you know, given all you've said. And, and he says, the Catechism says, by ways known to him alone, God can provide the opportunity for salutary repentance. The church prays for person, persons who have taken their own lives. I mean, Ken, that's the reason that, you know, the church over the centuries has declared who they've come to believe are in the presence of God. We call those saints. Mm. And there's criterion that the church uses. Its decision doesn't put somebody in heaven, but it it, it uses, you know, uh, criteria to discern who they believe are there. So we have St. Paul and St. Augustine and and St. Diffnitz and all these people whose example are about living holy and humble lives. But in all those years, the church has never declared anybody in hell. It doesn't say there's nobody in hell. It just has not declared specifically. Even Judas, whom scripture says committed suicide. But we do not know that in the moments before that last, his last breath, that as it said here, God had not provided the opportunity for solitary repentance. We always mm. pray that God in his mercy touched everyone in the instant of eternity.
1: Yeah, yeah, we can always hope that. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, there's just a thoughts, some thoughts on that. Uh, question, fine question. Thank you, Steve, for that. And we would love to have your thoughts on that discussion. Go to the website if you'd like to add your comments uh, to the today's discussion. As I, Our, uh, our uh, worksheet that we use that has the quotes from the Catechism of Su- that Suicide will be posted in case you want to read more of those. Alright, Ken, we're going to proceed into Romans chapter 2 which amazingly deals with this very issue about, okay, given the, the lifestyle of people who choosing how to respond to God and going into lifestyles that are not in line with God's teaching. How do we respond to them? And, Ken, what I'll do here is, uh, because we're going to just look at Romans 2, 1 through 8, for the audience, let me read this section, Ken, and then maybe you can give an overview um, of where this fits in the bigger argument of the context of Romans. So beginning in verse 1, after Paul is given this long list of the immoral choices that people have made in turning away from God in the, the revelation God has given us. Paul says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, whoever you are, when you judge another. For in passing judgment upon him, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. We know that judgment of God rightly falls upon those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed for he will render to every man according to his works to those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality he will give eternal life but for those who are factious and do not obey the truth but obey wickedness there will be wrath and fury Hmm. Well, what a verse, right? <laughs> I, this, again, this verse preaches like the others, and almost to a certain extent, it just clear.:
1: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the overall message, I think is is very clear, but it maybe reminds us of two things. One here, remember that Paul did not know anybody in the in the church in Rome personally. So he's writing to a community that he's never met. And as we said several weeks ago, we don't know how the church in Rome actually got started. Perhaps it was some of those Jews from the day of Pentecost that went back to Rome, and going back to Rome, they they started their, uh, their Christian communities. But one thing seems clear now is that Paul is dealing with a community that is a mixture of Jew and Gentile. And so... Um, the tensions that exist in between Jew and Gentile between Greco-Roman culture and the Jewish subculture uh, are coming out in this this text the The temptation for the Jew of that time, as well as notice either the Catholic or the Christian, uh, today is to look down on, to stand in judgment upon the culture around us, whereas, Paul here is saying, you too are without excuse. I think it's neat, Ken, also to bring in some of the history here behind
0: this and what's happening in Rome. You know, at the time that this is happening, uh, which would be, oh, the mid-first century, Mm -hmm. Rome has gone through a long series of uh, changes in its government, changes as a nation, um, and even the issues of understanding philosophy and morality and virtue have gone through great changes. And we particularly see that by the time this is probably happening, we see the rise to power of Nero. Right. And Nero becomes the, uh, and we see it in our day and age too, where, where we see cultures where leaders have risen Uh, through a process of maybe at one time a government of a certain country was holding things together, but power brokers rise to the top, and pretty soon we have someone with great charisma and power and using intrigue to not only uh, spread immorality in his own example, but then flowing back down into the culture. So the, the Christians in Rome Majority of them were poor on the, the mm. lower level of society. And yeah. the, the people who were running their lives, the government, the senators, uh, the rulers of Rome, following their pagan ideas, which Paul has been describing in Roman 1, are, are really you know, terrible examples of life. Yeah. So it'd be yeah. easy. For the Christians on the bottom rung of the ladder to be pointing all kinds of fingers at everybody yeah. else in Roman society as lost yeah. and pagan and depraved.
1: Well, it's interesting you, you bring this up because the, there's a, a famous uh, Roman philosopher, a senator he was named, um, named Seneca lucius seneca and seneca wrote moral essays now when you read those essays you think wow this is really good stuff i mean this guy was a very moral uh, moral thinking person and some of his thinking uh is reflected in the things that paul says and paul's and his so there was this minority of thinkers and they would have called them philosophers uh in ancient rome who had a higher moral standard But the point you're making, I think, is really worth underscoring. And that is, people, scholars have noticed that there was this great contradiction between what people were writing and the way people were living in ancient Rome. So what Paul, which shows Paul's words have a lot of relevance.
0: I'm going to have you come back to that, Ken, after the break. Because that is really important. That contradiction is an important background to the context of this verse. You're listening to Deep in Scripture, Marcus Grody and Dr. Kenneth Howell. And we'll see you in just a bit Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and Me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the Church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. On The Journey Home, Marcus welcomes convert from Judaism, Seth Cherney, to the show. See what convinced him to make The Journey Home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN.
1: The Journey Home is seen and heard around the
0: world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Crowdy, with Dr. Kenneth Howell. And I don't know if I've mentioned this very often in this program, but we actually have a video camera uh, posting our discussion. So in case you're really interested in seeing what old Ken and I look like uh, sitting in our studies, (laughs) uh, you can go to the CH Network website and you can watch the program. Uh, And again, we'd love to hear from you. So please send us an email or a thought or a comment on how we can make this program better to help you, help us together uh, grow deeper to our Lord Jesus Christ. Ken, uh, before the break, you were talking about the importance of understanding the context of the letter of Paul by understanding the Mm -hmm. contradictions that were there as we look back on the writings of Seneca. And uh, and, and, and to a certain extent, Mm -hmm. Ken, we have people today that uh, you know, love the writings of the Romans and the Greeks and the philosophers, and, and they want, you know, they lift that up, and that's good. St. Augustine did that, mm-hmm. as did St. Thomas Aquinas, and even the earlier Justin Martyr did show the truths of God that are present in these pagan philosophers. But the reality was that Paul was writing to a group of people that were under the, 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 the constant pressure
1: of the contradictions that were there. In Rome, yeah, they, yeah, that, that's right. What, what you find is that in those philosophers, and this is the reason why Augustine and others, Saint Justin Martyr, uh, admired them, in, in, is because they were they were the exceptions to the rule. The society around these Christians in Rome was really one full of this incredible paganism and superstition, and uh, sacrifice to idols. Simply to. Keep the wrath of the gods away the idea of a of a loving god was was by and large f- foreign to their to their mindset so when Paul uh, calls upon the Jews in the Roman church to be careful about judging it has a lot of um, a lot of significance because that would have been a very real temptation now now why does he do that because because he knows what it says in verse 2, and that is uh, that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who do such things. But notice he says the judgment of God falls upon it, not, not our judgment. We're not in a position of being the judges because we can't read the hearts of men. Because we can be
0: just too. as in danger today in our Christian churches behind our closed doors. Um, uh, railing against our pagan society around us and how bad everybody yeah. else is, you know, watching the, yeah. the nightly news and look at what's happening over in the Middle East and point our finger. Look at how nasty those people are. You know, they're, they 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 are going to rightly receive the judgment of God on the things that they're doing over there.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and what Paul, of course, is doing is he's taking that finger and pointing it back. Asking us to point it back ourselves because we end up doing the same things and here's an example Um, For example, we might look at some of those things in certain Islamic countries and they certainly are horrendous Um, They see the the decimation of life that is there, but at the same time Paul perhaps would ask us as our Lord did are we decimating or are we? murdering other people's character by the way that we talk about them uh, are we just as hateful toward other people in some way? And do we, uh, in the same way that people are being neglected in parts of the world, do we neglect those around us every day? So Paul is asking us to, as those who are part of the covenant, and we're part of the new covenant, whereas the Jews are part of the old covenant, a part of the new covenant community of God, do we also despise the grace and the mercy and the, the kindness of God that is patient with us and just trying to bring us to repentance?
0: Yeah, we, we point fingers, of course, at the the horrendous evil that we see being portrayed, even as we're talking, Ken, over uh, in the Middle East, of the, the massacre of children. Yeah, and yeah. rightly, we say that's wrong. But we live in a country of the world that murders more children than any other country in the world
1: through abortion. Well, I was talking with my grandson just about this very point because we were talking about Germany, and I was trying to explain Nazis in Germany and so forth—the fact that they're not the same, you know—and that and yes, the Nazis were German, but the, but all, not all Germans are Nazis. And uh, you know, he was quickly at his age making a judgment about the about the Nazis, and I said, "Well, yes, they had the extermination camps, but America has a Holocaust too, yeah. and its Holocaust is called abortion," you know. And it's so easy for people to um, twist the truth, to to make it uh, seem agreeable uh, to to ourselves. And, and this is not just the temptation of pagan people, this is the temptation of Christian, and of Jewish people, of Christian people, to engage in kind of a rationalization. That's what Paul's asking us not to do. Don't engage in rationalization. Um, look at look at what is good and what is bad and know that we're going to be responsible for that. Another interesting aspect about this passage is he'll lead in this leads in also into chapter three, Marcus, is that Paul is affirming here the judgment according to works. It's not according to faith. It's a judgment according to works. Faith is how we enter into the life of of work of doing good works. But on the last day, he says very explicitly in verse 6, quoting from an Old Testament text, he will render each according to his works. So it's going to be a judgment according to works. And and I think even, I remember reading an article by a, a good, honest uh, a Presbyterian theologian who said that this seems anomalous to us if we believe in justification by faith alone. And I think it is anomalous, but he said, but it does say here that we're going to be a uh, judged according to our works so
0: and it, let, let me address that as we here we are only a couple of years away from the 500th anniversary of the of the Protestant Reformation uh, you know in October 31st 2017 will be the 500th anniversary of when uh, father mountain Martin Luther the priest um, posted his 95 Challenges to what was happening in the church at the time. And, and the truth is that the majority of those uh, challenges were justified uh, in recognizing mm-hmm. problems in the way the teachings of the church were being carried out. Um, mm-hmm. So this issue of faith alone versus works is going to be one that's going to come up a lot in the next couple of years. And I think one of the ways that we look for ecumenical unity with our brothers and sisters is recognized certainly to a certain extent we are saved by faith alone mm. uh, if we under, if we misunderstand works as a way of manipulating God or if I do this therefore God you owe me salvation if that's the way we understand that or if I if I buy this relic or if I pay for this work of the church then therefore God owes me salvation then yes that's wrong. And so we need to understand that a misunderstanding of works is what led to the overreaction of faith alone. And so to a certain extent, faith alone is exactly right. But what do we mean by faith? Is faith merely uh, accepting truth about Jesus? Is it merely saying, I believe what the Bible says, and I put my faith in Jesus, and so therefore, as it's often been demonstrated, Ken you know this from your work in your days as a Presbyterian pastor and youth minister as I did, this idea of the four spiritual laws, you know, God loves us and has a great plan for our life, but because of sin, as Paul talks about in Romans 1, because of we've chosen against God, therefore we're separated from God through this great chasm of our sin. And then Jesus is the cross that lays across that chasm that if we have faith in Jesus alone, then we will be saved and therefore saved forever. And that's the way I taught it. But really faith alone in Jesus, as we look at the teachings of Scripture and the great spiritual writers of the church, see that that image is not exactly accurate. It's not a one-time faith in Jesus. It's a, a... it's a lifelong living out of that faith in Christ, not to get us over a chasm of sin, but through the caverns of life. Envision trying to get through a, a, you know, tunnels and, of a huge cavern, like the caverns out in, in New Mexico, right? You get mm-hmm. down below in Carlsbad yeah. Caverns, and, and you get down in there and you're lost and you don't know which cavern to get through, and some are dark, and some are light, and some are up, and some are down. And that's life, as T.S. Eliot said, you know, the way up and the way down are one and the same. The way through life is ups and downs, and how do we get through it? Well, faith alone in Jesus means that he is the one way through those caverns. And by putting our faith in him, we follow him, and he shows us the way that he has brought for us through his death and resurrection. But it's also through his way of living, his teaching, his moral commitment to humility and poverty and simplicity. That's what faith alone in Christ means. He is the one way through those caverns.
1: Well, you remember when on the day of Pentecost, Marcus when Preater uh, was preaching, uh, and, and and speaking of Christ as the Messiah. The, the question that came back in chapter 2 of Acts, I think it's verse 37 or so, is what must we do to be saved? And what he says is, repent. And so he doesn't, he doesn't say primarily believe, although he does say, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now notice that that same word uh, comes up here in our chapter 2, verse 4. Actually,
0: he says, just to be cured, he says, repent and be baptized. <laughs> He doesn't even yeah, use that's the word true. believe. Yeah. He, yeah, he doesn't to be baptized.
1: Thank you for that correction. That's very good repent and be baptized. So faith and repentance always go together, if you study this in the New Testament. So if you look at verse 4, he says, when he's asking this question, do do you, well, your version said presume, I think a better translation for katafroneo is, do you despise the wealth of his grace, the wealth of his goodness? Uh, Because don't you know that the kindness of God leads to repentance? That's what That's what God is waiting on. He's waiting for us to repent, to change, to turn around. And the Greek word metanoiao is based upon the Hebrew word shuv, the verb shuv, which means to return. That's what it means. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful. So repentance then does exactly what you're saying. We're going through this cavern. It's dark. We cannot see which way to go. Jesus is the light. So we're following him through the caverns of life in order to arrive at eternal life. But that means that we're turning away from ourselves, our own ideas, and following him. You know, I, That's I was, what repentance. I was thinking
0: about that image. Uh, of course, Plato used that same image too, in if you have a cave, but yeah, John of the right. Cross used that image also in, about darkness. And I think you know, the danger of once saved always saved, I have faith in Jesus. And when someone asked, you know, if you died tonight and God asked you the question, why should I let you into my kingdom? And if your answer is, Well, I just point to Jesus, well, that's good to a to a point. Because all through scripture it talks about this very thing, about it's how we live out that faith in Christ, how we followed him. And John of the Cross talks about in his writings that The longer we follow Christ, and the longer we grow to imitate him, if we're imitating him by grace, in growing in humility, and surrendering to him, uh, seeking to follow him in simplicity, and particularly in love, what we find, particularly in John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, to remind us that it doesn't necessarily get easier. That Mm -hmm. the life of faith is not one that always is. Now I can sit back in my lazy boy and I've arrived. Is that as we get older and following Christ, it's possible we may feel farther from Him as He is maturing us, Mm. preparing us for the end. We see this in the letters of Saint of uh, of uh, of uh, uh, Teresa, Mother Teresa.
1: Yeah, Mother Teresa, absolutely.
0: In his, in her letters where she recognized mm-hmm. that with all that she was doing and her love for Christ and following him, there were times when she felt very, very, very far from God. And even to the point of, of questioning. And John of the Cross talks about this darkness and what it is, it's strengthening us for the end. It's strengthening us for the journey through the caverns of life, yeah. And John in Revelation, seven times in the seven letters, every time he says, the end is to those who conquer in following yeah. Christ. And, yeah. you know, the reason we must not presume, as Ken, you pointed out upon the riches of his kindness, is because we may be granted a long life. We may have man, to follow man. him for a long, long time. Time. Billy Graham recently wrote a book when he was 93, and he says in there, If he'd have known <laughs> that he was going to live this long, he never <laughs> expected to live this long. And it's a wonderful book about how to live in your twilight years and about the difficulties of following Christ, yet the grace that prepares us to follow that long journey.
1: Well, exactly. And I think and I appreciate you pointing out that book because. Just lately I've had a lot of contact with people that are in their late eighties, even early nineties, and and I've noticed that many of them really struggle. I mean, these are these are Christian believers, some Catholics, some Protestant. And I think without without wanting to sound triumphalist, I think this is one of the beauties of our Catholic faith, is that we recognize that being a Christian is not just a state in which we live, but it's a journey that we're on. And that means that We're always growing closer to Christ. And it is going to, perhaps, as we get toward the end of our life, it's going to look dark because we're seeing more the contrast between this life and the life to come. That's why what you said earlier, I think, was so important. Faith is the the entry into this life of, of faith and works. But what is our life as Christian believers, as Catholic Christian believers? Well, it's one of continually offering ourselves as a sacrifice to the Lord. And Paul himself is going to say this in chapter 12, right? At the very beginning of chapter 12, he's going to say, I urge you to offer yourself, your bodies, as a living sacrifice which is your rational or your spiritual worship. And what does it mean to offer ourselves to God? It means not to be conformed to the sage, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. So that it's it, it's this continuous light, a journey toward this renewal, this inner transformation, this re-schematization, if you will, of our souls so that we are getting ready to go meet God, the God who is going to judge us according to our works, according to what Paul says here in Romans 2.
0: Well, you pointed out a parallel verse, Ken, in the break that I want to make sure we bring up for our audience in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we should begin with verse 9 through 11, the whole context. But he says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive good or evil according to what he has done in the body. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. You know, Ken, again, this, this, here he emphasizes again the fact that it, it, during this long life, whether it's only going to be tonight or whether it's another 5 or 10 or 20 or 30 years, it's a long journey following Christ. It's not just looking back to some time 30 years ago when we accepted Jesus at a Bible camp. It's every single day living out this faith in obedience, and it's a long journey. And in verse 11 of Second Corinthians 5, Paul emphasizes that the fear of the Lord is not just merely something you passed way back when, and now that I've accepted Jesus, the fear of the Lord isn't there. I just have the love of God. No, it's mm-hmm. knowing the fear of the Lord. You know, that, that verse, can knowing the fear of the Lord is a continuing present reality. And hmm. it's a gift of the Spirit. And every early church father says that the one way to bring up your kids is in the fear of the Lord because that's the foundation upon what this long walk of Christ is.
1: Well, there used to be a, an expression in our culture that was widely accepted, and that is, a compliment. He's a God-fearing man, and this is using the Old Testament sense, which Paul's using here in Second Corinthians five eleven, that fear in the sense of a deep sense of reverence. In other words, I want to be pleasing to God more than I want to be pleasing uh, to men. It doesn't mean fear in the sense of trembling here. It means more this deep respect that one has. Uh, for God. And boy, do we ever need to, to return to that, not only in the culture, but even in <laughs> our churches, we need a, a sense of that. I'm, I'm afraid that we have uh, committed the heresy of casualism <laughs> in, yeah. our, oh, in our yeah. culture. That is the idea of just taking God's grace for granted. And Paul's giving us a strong reminder here in chapter two, our text for today, that uh, we cannot presume on the grace of God. We We must let our lives correspond to the grace that he's given us. In fact in verses 3, 4 and 5 Ken really important
0: way to understand this it seems to me when Paul says do not suppose oh man that when you judge those who do such things and you do them yourself you will escape the judgment of God. Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I envision in those verses, Ken, this presumption that we might have, hey, I'm saved in Jesus. I'm a part of the church. I've been baptized, catechized, confirmed. I go to Mass. I go to worship every Sunday. I read my Bible every day. So as if we're sitting here with God and and our arms are around Jesus and his arms are around us. And we're sitting side by side, standing in judgment, everybody out there who isn't with us. Because we think God's on our side. And therefore, I'm righteously sitting with God here, pointing judgment on them, blind to the fact that in the ignorance, in the blindness of who I am, in need of Christ continually every day that I am storing up wrath from myself in the way that I've judged mm-hmm. others. Didn't Jesus tell us, mm-hmm. Ken, that there's one simple prayer that we are to pray and when he said it in Matthew, he said, forgive us our sins as we mm-hmm. forgive others. You know, yeah. that's in the context of Matthew where he doesn't give the the rest of the of the Lord's Prayer the way we hear it in the Didache or the way we hear it in most churches on a Sunday, you know, to the glory and the power and all that. He goes on to talk about this very thing, that, you know, after he does the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For he says, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your Heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses—we're storing up wrath for ourselves through yeah, our unwillingness yeah. to forgive or to seek forgiveness.
1: In the length of time that I've lived, um, when I was a young man, I used to think that the many of the real problems were the um, you know the drug abuse and the sexual license of our culture and all these things. But the older I've gotten, I I, I think I, what I'm seeing is that there's a much greater problem with anger and bitterness and hatred and these Amen. inner dispositions that are keeping people apart keeping people from understanding one another yeah. i think this is what the lord was talking about about forgiving one another is uh in, in our families in our churches uh and boy this is this is really tough i'll give you just maybe a personal example real quickly but i brought up an issue with my spiritual director recently and he uh, about the so difficulty I was struggling with with a, a particular person. And he said, Ken, you have to make a decision every day. When you think of that person and what that guy did, you have to think about this. Lord, you have to say, Lord, I forgive him, and I'm putting that in behind me. Now, that's a difficult thing to do, that is to, to let that flow down into the emotional level. But he said, you have to make a decision of your will first to do that, and then... The healing of the emotions comes, so in the same way, what Paul is telling us, I think in here is that we have to be we have to be very careful, make a decision, no, I'm not going to judge that person, that's not my position to say that, or I don't know what's in that person's heart, therefore I'm not going to do that. I'm going to focus upon what I know to be true and good. You know, Kenneth, that's not only the thing that sets
0: human beings apart from animals. You know, our intellect to understand mm. sin and our depravity yeah. and that and then our will to choose to forgive uh, and to seek forgiveness uh, and to apologize but it's what sets Christianity apart from many other faiths That's is true. This, this recognition of forgiveness uh, as Paul says here to those who by patience and well doing. Patience and well doing. We may talk, we'll pick up on that next week Ken as we begin the next section here but why we need the church to help us understand how to live out this faith. Uh, You know, if we just look at the Bible we can come up for ourselves these conclusions but what does it mean to live in patience and well-doing seeking glory, honor, and immortality? We need to understand that so that we can indeed follow in his footsteps. Yes. Thanks, Ken, for joining us today again. And, uh, and for all of you thank you for joining us on this program again please connect with us at uh, deepinscripture.com we'd love to hear from you and uh, we want to study this together because we do believe that uh, as we seek to follow christ we n- are never to do this alone that we do this together helping each other grow in holiness so that indeed we can stand before him
1: without embarrassment. God bless you. See you next week.